0: Good Wednesday morning and today we'll be talking with Dr. John Patrick about the consequences of abortion. What I want to talk about is something that really had not struck me for a long while and I have followed the abortion story all the way through from being a supporter to being very pro- profoundly opposed to it and looking back over the whole history there's a little bit of setup first Our world has been dominated by the illusion that technology can solve all problems and that science is all you really need. I bought into that idea without thinking about it because I said and believed that I was a Christian and I didn't see that the two were incompatible because I didn't spend time thinking about it. It's called reductionism. Nowadays, scientific reduction, the many forms of reductionism, and it's a powerful tool. When Galileo started rolling a ball down an inclined plane and changing the angle and measuring where it landed, first of all he proved that Aristotle got it wrong, and secondly he started modern physics. What he was trying to do was help people firing cannons fire them more accurately. But it eventually ended up setting a man on the moon. Now rolling that ball down the inclined plane, he knew that friction had an impact, so he polished like mad to make the frictional effects of the experiment minimal. That's what we do when we reduce to do experiments. We pretend that... well, not pretend, we try and reduce something we want to neglect to a minimal effect. Uh, and it worked, of course, for science. Uh, the explosion in scientific knowledge during the 17th century was incredible, and it was that science was dominated by Christians, because that was the only way they had of understanding the world. Uh, they didn't realize what they were doing, profoundly committed Christians used this technique, and in science, it's the right way to do science. But, When you allow that way of thinking to slip over into everyday life, all sorts of things start to happen that we don't think about. Um, And that's what we did. And so we bought into it as a general purpose model. The famous comment being, Laplace asked by Napoleon where God fitted into his science, and he said, Sir, I have no need of the concept of God to do science. And that was true what he should have acknowledged, because he was a smart man, is that without the ideas that Judeo-Christian thought brought along, science would never have happened anyway. It's worth thinking why nobody else did it. Experimental science happened only in Europe. I'm sorry for the people who are going so mad about uh, various things in this kind of area, but you've got to start with what actually happened. And I had to learn that by going to Africa and realizing the science that I'd done couldn't fit into a pagan society. We live our lives with an intuitive backdrop which we don't even think about. And for the Western world that intuitive backdrop uh, for now over 20 centuries has been Judeo-Christian thought. Nothing else really made an impact. Now what happened with the so-called enlightenment which along with Macintyre I prefer to call an endarkenment because that's what it was was that we sidelined it without really thinking what we were doing and you need to do that to be able to even think about doing abortion because in the Judeo-Christian tradition it's not an option because every living creature is made in the image of God, and is alive only because God made it so. If you really believe that, life is God's province, life and death, not yours, and you're not going to touch it. You're not going to go there. Certainly not going to say it's good and right. So that was the world that that made us, and certainly made medicine possible, as we'll illustrate in in a little while. So by the time I was going to school in the 50s, uh, certainly the working class that I came from had ceased going to church in England for a long while. And in America you didn't cease going to church, but you did turn the church into a social club instead of a place where you learnt your basic uh, underpinnings for life. You did get that to a degree, but but it was already being eroded. in my world, it was eroded much more. So, within weeks of arriving in medical school, I was a fervent reductionist. I, I wanted to understand the body as a disordered machine. And that's a good way to do experimental science. But it's not a good way to do medicine as a whole. And nobody was teaching that because they didn't think about it. So it turned out I was good at it experimental science. Um, I had the, the right kind of quirky mind to do it. So that's the route I took. But in, before I, I became a full-time scientist primarily, while I was still doing internal medicine for the first five years or so after graduation, I was doing um, infectious diseases in London and every now and again a a woman would turn up who was pregnant with a rash and everybody knew that rashes in pregnancy could be dangerous because of rubella. Now many viruses produce a similar rash but if it's rubella and it's the wrong time in your pregnancy you face really serious problems with your baby, major neurological and cardiac problems. So women who were pregnant and got a rash would go and see the doctor and they'd get sent to someone like me Uh, and they'd say, is this German measles, which is what we called it in those days. There was no vaccine at that point. Those who are anti-vaccination should think about this because this problem doesn't exist anymore. Um, And I'd say, well, it could be, but there are many viruses that produce a rash like this, so we'll take some blood today, some more in a week or 10 days' time, and then I'll see you as soon as we've got the result. So two weeks later I would see her and say, in most cases it's not, it's not uh, rubella, you don't have to worry, off you go. Or let's look at your dates, it is rubella, but let's see what your dates were. And in many cases say it's either, no you're not going to have an effect, you're too far on, or you, when this happened you hadn't gone far enough for it to matter. But sometimes it was very bad news and what we were taught to say and what I had been taught to think the reductionist approach to medicine forgets the person and looks upon itself as doing problem solving he's a woman with a problem and so I would say "Mm, this pregnancy's gone wrong hasn't it and I'd get a nod yes would you like to start again yes well we can make that happen and I facilitated an abortion it was strictly illegal at that time, and I was glad when it ceased to be. But I didn't feel any guilt. Note the word feel. If I'd thought about it, I would have been in a different world. But I didn't think about it, I just felt. And didn't think about it for 20 years, uh, which is terrible. When I did start thinking about it, the world had to change. Now, it's important to put that initial story in place because we do the whole world this way now. Everything we do pretty well we're using a reductionistic model, not a Christian one. And it's when it gets to things like education, uh, philosophy, politics, government, justice, that real trouble starts to appear and the damage that it's done to medicine is undeniable. So how do you open up that discussion? Everybody's now at the stage where they th- most people think it's a woman's right to have an abortion. I thought that for a long while. And as a man, I accepted that that was their problem and we should leave them to get on with it whichever way they wanted. It took me a long while to get past that. But the key opening question is to demonstrate first of all to the, the students that they don't trust everybody in their class. Some people are more trustworthy than others, and you can trace that back to family and to belief. Um, The error can be major or minor. I mean, it's a relatively minor error if you come from a background that puts loyalty over truth, because both truth and loyalty are good things. The Muslims, for instance, are traditionally a loyalty-based culture. Other Muslims come first, and you may lie and do anything whatsoever to it to a a, a pagan from their point of view an unbeliever Uh, but you must look after other Muslims and lie on their behalf if necessary. Judeo-Christian thought put truth above loyalty. You should tell the truth first and work out the consequences. Now that looks like a small difference but actually it's huge because when you put truth over loyalty you get your job because of what you know. When you put loyalty over truth, you get your job because of who you know. Which one, Which society is going to be the more effective, the more efficient? It's a no-brainer, and the world shows it. The Muslims make nothing that we really want except, say, carpets, which they can do within a very straight confine. But they haven't made a major contribution of science since about the 12th century as Muslims. When they come to the West and become secularised, then... Yeah, they've got the same minds as everyone else and they start living in a different culture. Um, they do good science. But they have won a Nobel Prize in science for a long while. They try and include one of, who was born a Muslim but he was actually an atheist that they talk about all the while. Uh, they're, so they're beginning to realise the problem. But we haven't thought about what it's done to us in the same way. But I could point out to the students, they don't trust everyone and that helps. Then I ask them the question of those that are there, as I assume that those that they don't trust don't come to a lecture on abortion. Um, And I say, but you don't agree on this issue, do you? So the real question turns out not to be abortion at all. But the starting point surely must be, what must you believe in order to be willing to do an abortion and not feel guilty about it? And what must you believe to take the opposite position? That's not difficult to unpack, is it? It's essentially a question of what you believe about the nature of human life. And if you believe that life is a gift of God and its ending is in His hands and you have no right to touch it, you're not going to go there for purely rational reasons. If on the other hand you do want to do abortions, what must you actually believe even though you haven't thought about it? Surely you have to believe that life is relative it's not a given that we should take seriously and put first it has to take its role like everything else being experimented upon and worked out what you want to do so you may not have thought about that when you do an abortion but what you're thinking about is my life is more important than that life now uh, I, I was reading, one of the things I read this week was an article by a Jewish woman who's writing I like, uh, Barbara Kaye in the National Post, and she was writing about this, and she said, I'm pro-choice, but I do wish that they would tell people what they're doing, make them say, uh, they must say, I'm killing a human creature, because to say anything else is a lie. We were all embryos once. So unless we could wish that our mother had done to us what we're about to do, we ought not to do it on the simple grounds of don't do to others what you don't want done to you. But we don't think that way anymore. We don't think about it at all and we cover it up, as always, with some sort of jargon that makes us feel better. So medical students are nowadays taught when a woman comes to you and she's pregnant you must first find out whether she wants the pregnancy or not. If she doesn't want the pregnancy you talk about a fetus. If she wants it you talk about a baby. That's manipulation of language. So the very first starting point is what what do you necessarily believe in order to to do an abortion? Now the first women who were persuaded to have an abortion by the feminist elite who knew how the world should be and they would change it and make it a better world. That was their intent. They're just too arrogant, like all intellectuals. But the first women to have it, of course, were largely women from the ghettos or from the lower classes, so-called, and they were told, an abortion's no more than having a tooth removed. They came back afterwards and said, I feel as though I have killed my baby. It doesn't feel as though I've had a tooth removed. Now, it's it's almost impossible to get out of that uh, problem. You can manipulate your way, which is what they did. A brilliant woman, Annette, Maya, ba- Bayer I think, uh, a philosopher said, "Look, what we must do is pull apart two concepts. And this is the next domino in the effect of fall. First of all, we had to." deny belief systems matter, now we had to do it again. And what she did, she said, we can't argue that fertilization is the only point at which a human being gets their personal DNA mixture, your personal 3.5 billion ID number, uh, because that's how many digits there are in your genetic code. Now. let's call that a human being and get the conversation switched to a human person. And you can say to these women, but it wasn't a person, was it? And they hadn't thought about that. Well, I don't know. They say, well, how, how do we define a person? And they very subtly, of course, chose to, chose to look at function. You become a person when you're capable of relationship. Some days your wife probably doubts whether you're a person, right? You always get that ironic smile. Uh, It's true. Uh, I'm waiting for the day when a woman kills her husband when he was drunk and because of abortion legislation she'll say he wasn't a person at the time and she'll win, but we'll see. But that's very subtle. Simply changing the language from human being to human person sets in motion a whole process of phenomenon and we need to think about it. The consequences of banning abortion should lead to backstreet abortion. Actually there's no evidence that that actually happens. Uh, A maternal mortality rate doesn't go up, it goes down. Um, And that that data comes from Chile where they've done uh, an experiment of nature over 20 more plus years. Uh, uh, They had a socialist government that legalized abortion. I forgot the name of the president now, but he was taken over by a not very nice, very fascist-orientated man, Pinochet, who did a lot of horrible things, but he banned abortion amongst others. Then they've gone back to the more liberal socialist version, so you have this long period with abortion, without abortion, with abortion. The maternal mortality rate was lowest under Pinochet. Because most girls having an abortion, which has which is risky, uh, especially done under uh, bad conditions, um, are not doing it because they wanted it. They're pushed into it by the men who don't want to be called daddy. That's the only explanation I can come up with. But that's the next thing that happened. Um, everything is consequential. The, we should acknowledge that, in theory at least, backstreet abortion should be the consequence of banning uh, abortion, but there's no evidence, in the Chile experiment as counter-evidence. And, of course, it was nowhere near the numbers they said, because a little later, doing uh, nephrology in London, if you die of a septic abortion, a backstreet abortion, you die of acute renal failure in the vast majority of cases, and you would end up in a dialysis unit before you died. Um, There was nowhere near enough dialysis capacity for what they said was the prevalence of backstreet abortion. Uh, And Nathanson, years later, in that wonderful book that every honest liberal and any serious Christian both need to read, uh, The Hand of God, Nathanson was a liberal Jew who was very much involved in the beginning of the american abortion movement uh he aborted two of his own children i think at, at different stages and he didn't realize he was wrong until well into his 60s i think and he wrote this magnificent book as he was brought to the realize how wrong he'd been and he wrote about it superbly so the hand of god by bernard nathanson is a, the kind of book you you should read every now and again um and share it with friends who need to realize there is a problem because here's a man who was an ardent liberal um, in the modern version of liberal not the old version and he changed he was an atheist but he changed and he changed because of embryology uh, until relatively recently we couldn't watch the baby growing so to speak now the first picture in everybody's baby book is a video of the, uh, of the ultrasound So mum has already bonded and she doesn't know it, but even dad bonds when he watches that little picture of him coming along. So that's where we've got to. So these things have consequences. So once abortion was made legal, you had the problem deciding when you become a person, if that's the way you're going to do it. And that, of course, is a very movable feast some babies are going to be born without ever reaching the level of being capable of relationship in a way that we would normally talk about it so and what's special about 12 weeks or 20 weeks they're all arbitrary numbers the only non-arbitrary ones are zero and all the rest and of course we pushed the limits didn't we? In Canada we haven't had a law on abortion for over 20 years so everything can be done including an up to partial birth abortion where the baby's head is still in the birth canal and the legs are out and kicking it's still legal to put a trocar in the back of the brain and piss the baby so that it dies before the head comes out and that is technically an abortion and it's been tested in court it's not murder everybody else knows it is you start dulling your mind and your uh, sensitivities quite dramatically when, over time when you look at what's happened so what happened next well of course we had taken birth from the emergence from the uterus of a child who has the right to be because God made the life in the first place now every child born after abortion was legalized in America 73 is not like that they come into the world as the choice of their mother. Their mother could have killed them, she chose not to, so if you're born after 1973, thank you mom that she didn't abort you. Um, you can then start talking about whether she should have had the right to do it in the first place, but she did, she had that right. But that makes children different. I came into the world and. I knew deep down, because it's hard hardwired, but I also had it affirmed around me uh, by anybody who could watch, is that every parent knew they had a responsibility for their children. Children knew that their mum and dad owed them, so to speak. They push the limits, don't they, when they're babies and they won't go to sleep and they squawk and all the rest of They can push you around from a very early age, get you driving madly to the emergency room for no reason at all, except that their cross or whatever but you can't tell the difference that world very different now the insecurity that we see grossly exaggerated by COVID uh, is related to this because especially those who, th- who feel these things they, they know they're not living up to their mother's expectations and that does some grave psychological harm Whereas if they inhabited the Judeo-Christian story, they'd know, well, yeah, we're all sinners, so we all screw up with regular monotony. But if we're not sinners, because that category doesn't exist anymore, you've got trouble. So, we have much more anxious people than we used to have. People much less certain of who they are. They're not creatures made in the image of God anymore. They're accidents of nature. They may or may not have happened. You can see where this one is going to go uh, already by this stage. The intrinsic value of life was a very stabilizing factor in society. It's gone. Um, So being in person, very dangerous. What happened next? Well, let me get the order right. We've talked about where you draw the line. Now the next set, of course, are infanticide, geriatricide, killing of the handicapped, the return of eugenics. That whole process has happened in my lifetime. The Hippocratic denial that a doctor should ever terminate life lasted until the end of the 19th century. It's a long run. Nobody questioned it. They may not have done it all the while, but they didn't question that it was the right principle. Now, in the 19th century, after Darwin's uh, great feat of completely removing any teleological thought from our minds uh, as a justifiable thought, started working on people like me, professors. So we would say something like this in a lecture. We are breeding, we are making better animals. We are breeding better animals. Why don't we breed better people? Now, fortunately they couldn't do anything about it initially. But what needed to be discussed and wasn't is what you mean by the word better. If you had to choose between Helen Keller and some mafia thug, who's got all his faculties, which one would you choose? Of course it would be Helen Keller. If it's not, you don't have any sensitivity whatsoever. And if you don't know about Helen Keller, then the culture's gone even further. Blind and deaf, but wow, what she performed, what she did for society. The the disabled and the handicapped have a vital function in society to humble us, which they do regularly. And we're in grave need of a lot more humility than we currently have going around. So now, in the Western world, in most countries, we are setting out to eliminate about 30 metabolic diseases by eugenic abortion. It's not wrong to want to get rid of diseases, but doing it that way is... Uh, ends do not justify means because there will be such consequences but that's what we're doing. What it means is that general pediatric care will not improve over the next little while because to do things well you have to do them often and keep doing them regularly. Currently we need a a population base of at least three million to run a really good pediatric department. When we finish this process It's going to be a lot more than that. That means Canada with 30 to 40 million people and the second biggest country in the world will only be able to sustain, say, four or five first-class paediatric units. That means a lot of people are going to be a very long way from really good care for their children. That's just another side effect. I don't normally put it in, but I put it in now. I hope it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Um, Eugenics is back. Now, what happened in that story, of course, is that the first re emergence of eugenics in, not re emergence, the first emergence of practical eugenics was with the Nazis. Most people do not know that the first act of the Hitler government was to legalize the killing of the handicapped. The Jews were not first, they were some way down the list. Uh, Vagrants and gypsies and homosexuals, as well as the handicapped, both physically and mentally, uh, preceded them in the process of being killed. Now, in the days before we had psychotropic drugs, on the outskirts of every city there were multiple hospitals uh, called lunatic asylums because uh, going back to Luna, the, the moon was blamed for making people mad, but uh, that's what they were called in those days, uh, and we had no other means to deal with them than to put them somewhere safe, which is what we did, and the best of them were really uh, very good. Um, but when Hitler came to power, those people were under the control of psychologists, psychiatrists and uh, neurologists and some of those patients had to be in a locked ward because they were too dangerous to themselves and to other people and so the thought went something like this. These people are having lives not worth living. Now we can get rid of them because it was legal. So the first killings were actually done by doctors not by Nazi soldiers or people at Auschwitz. They started with doctors, and they tried doing it by injection, and they found to their horror that it haunted them. They needed distance. If you're going to kill someone, you need distance, which is why we we make people wear prison uniforms. It's a a dehumanizing process uh, if we're going to use lethal force on them. That's why the Jews were dressed up to look silly before they were murdered. Uh, It's a a sort of grudging statement that what you're doing is wrong because you wouldn't be doing this otherwise. So they stopped for a moment, but they didn't give up. So the first gas chamber was actually invented by a psychiatrist. Um, Hitler didn't know anything about this. It was only when he came round to the final solution for the Jews and up the number of people he wanted to kill per day. Initially, the Wehrmacht were asked to shoot them naked into trenches they'd been forced to, to dig, but that demoralized Hitler's Wehrmacht, so it had to be stopped. Uh, when they were asked to do that, they also started drinking and using drugs, and they were useless as soldiers. Then they discovered that the doctors, what the doctors were doing so the whole elimination the holocaust was handed over to the medical profession amazingly when you arrived at auschwitz or dachau you were met on the station by um, a doctor who did a very casual examination he said looked at you and said enough muscle mass to work work camp still to the gas chamber at the end but we'll get some work out of you first old people women and children straight to the gas chamber, with the irony over the gates, freedom through work, but the only freedom they were offering was death. Most doctors know nothing of this, but doctors joined the SS in disproportionate numbers, with an authoritarian streak. Um, we, we need to acknowledge that. Now, an, a great American uh, psychologist, uh, Jay Lifton, when this stuff came out at the Nuremberg Trials, he went to interview all these doctors, wrote a book called The Nazi Doctors, but their defence is a very interesting one. I was simply obeying orders, and we, following the, the, first, the Second World War, we didn't accept that as a, as an excuse and we executed them. Now we do accept it as an excuse. We're not getting tougher and stronger morally, we're getting weaker and insipid. Abortion is part of this process, eugenics is another. Perhaps the worst, in some ways, is what it did to justice. Because when abortion was legalized, uh, the main argument was a purely utilitarian one that the pill had been invented in the 1960s, but you can forget to take it, or your daughter can pinch your contraceptive pills and replace them with little white pills uh, so that she can have sex without risk, and you get pregnant. Uh, so, Blackman, I think, wrote that American women have become used to effective contraception, but it will fail on occasion, so there must be a backup. So the justification for abortion was that trivial. A backup technology that must be allowed. It's not good news. The one dissenting judge said quite rightly, this is not justice. This is pure power given to the woman, manipulated by the elite. He was right. Now, uh, the situation has changed, not as much as people like to think, but it's progress. Uh, Bring it nearer to people who are ordinary people, and they will make ordinary, solid decisions. Uh, We'll see. Uh, The numbers will show whether I'm right or wrong. But what that did to to justice wasn't really picked up uh, in any articulate way for about six years. 1979 at Duke University, Arthur Leff, who taught common law at Yale, gave a lecture on justice. If you want to read it, just put Leff, L-E-F-F, Justice, uh, Duke Law Review, 1979, and you'll get to it. Um, It opens brilliantly, and it impressed me so much that it's in my... I can paraphrase it from memory, he says, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete immanent, that's a technical term, not imminent, next week, but immanent means accessible to you, although much bigger than you, theology is immanent knowledge, uh, immanent knowledge that directs us as to how, and transcendent, uh, that directs us how to live our lives righteously, Why did he want those two characteristics of immanent and transcendence? Well, he was Jewish. I think non-practicing as far as I can find out. So he wanted Torah to be from God. Because if it was not from God, then why would the judges not give decisions which serve their class, their section of society? Why would they care about being the same for everyone and of course the evidence is that they don't anymore. Many of them. They don't have a standard code. Because if the law comes from God then the judges are under authority. But if you no longer believe that, who controls the judges? No one. They're supposed to be above it all and do right without any basis of what right is. Justice is never defined by God. He gives ten divine intolerances and says, get on with it. If you take these intolerances seriously and make them the basis for your life, you will flourish. And if you don't, you won't. Now, most frequently idols who have got in the way, and we have plenty of those today. The second thing that got in the way was the extraordinary demand that God made is that they have a Sabbath day in a very serious fashion. And in the Old Testament, I think that's the second most frequent criticism that God has of his people that they do not keep the Sabbath. I couldn't understand that for a long while. We don't keep it in the way that it's defined in the Old Testament. But what's going on there is not unimportant. And I tell students, the Sabbath is a way to keep you from neurosis. If you go pushed by your parents beyond your real uh, intellectual abilities. The Sabbath is the last thing that will save you because if you keep the Sabbath and you're relying on memory and not on real learning, you will fail. You, you have to use every day, which is what the worst students do. I did keep the Sabbath because I liked it. I didn't think my whole life should be medicine, so although I stopped going to church or anything like that, I always on Sunday would not do any work that related to my profession. I would read things that interested me. It might have been work in other people's books, but it was relaxation in mine. And that keeps you sane. Uh, you can look at the nonsense that's going a lot on around you and say, well, it's nonsense. Or at least you could. Now you have to be more careful how you do it. But if you can't get through your training and keep the Sabbath, you're going to find yourself qualified for a job you can't actually do well. And so you end up working absolutely incredible hours. That's useless. That's going to destroy your marriage, your family, and everything else. That's where we've got ourselves to. It's Isn't it amazing that it's linked to this whole process? Uh, Left goes on to say, I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing as God, but rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is to be simultaneously perfectly free and perfectly ruled. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to invent it. Now, even Americans can't have both. You've got to choose. And the left then spends a dozen pages or more writing clear, lucid prose, very unacademic. You can understand every word. The penultimate paragraph begins like this. I mean, Darwin is de rigueur. Everybody has to be a Darwinist. He doesn't mention Darwin, but he says, It looks to me, looking around the world, that if brotherly love exists, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Only if the law was unnatural and unspeakable by us would it be unchallengeable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. We are in trouble. Then he says, very movingly, he says, nevertheless, nap-arming babies is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Uh, Starving the poor is wrong. There is in this world such a thing as evil. He just said there wasn't. He knew what he should do. He should have taken the last paragraph and made it the penultimate and said, because we know these things, now we know that brotherly love shouldn't be like Cain and Abel. We need a story that's rich enough and deep enough to take us the whole way. Now, the next dominoes to fall are compassion. We have no reason for compassion. It's just the way nature is. Nature read in tooth and claw. The common good, you can argue the same way, and the more Darwinian of us simply do what benefits us all the while. Look after number one. And of course the bottom line at the end of this is what basis do you have for meaning when you come to the end of your life can you say as the community i grew up within would say here we now have no abiding city we seek a city whose builder and maker is god they died well because they began to see and in fact Those of you who doubt this, there's a little book by a woman called Diane Komp, K-O-M-P. She was professor of pediatrics at Yale. I haven't got time to fill in the story. I've already gone on too long. But she wrote a book called A Window on Heaven. Read it. Give it to your wife. Read it with your wife or your husband. It's about children dying and how they brought her back to faith. I hope you can... Work your way through this, and have and use it yourself. Try it out on your friends first of all, till you've got the whole concept in your head. They can't. They have no comeback. We ought to have won this battle much sooner than we did, but it will require the rebuilding of the Christian mind. And there I must stop. Thank you, John. Thank you for talking to us about abortion and the consequences and the effects that they have in our society. And thank you all for listening.